Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it's really a great thrill for me to see a packed house in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. This evening's program is presented in conjunction with the exhibition Freedom Journey 1965, Photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein. The exhibition will be open, actually it was supposed to be open through April, but we have had such a clamor, especially on the part of teachers to bring their students here that we've extended the exhibition through June. Uh, you might also want to return during regular museum hours to see a marvelous exhibition on the history of Chinese in America on our first floor. And uh, this Friday we open a brand new exhibition uh, on Lincoln and the Jews that shows our 16th president's um, embrace of all humankind with malice toward none. I want to uh, encourage anyone here this evening who is not yet a member of the New York Historical Society to join your support of this great institution enables us to do all of our work. Tonight's program, An Evening with Cornell West, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, and as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. We are also particularly pleased to welcome this evening the Boy Scouts from Troop 520, and I have seen them. We are uh, very proud of our history buffs and history buffs in the making, so thank you for being here this evening. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session, as always. Audience members will be invited to line up in the aisles to my left and to my right behind standing microphones. We do this so that everyone in the audience, the speaker on the stage, and people who listen to our uh, podcasts at home uh, are able to hear you. Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker, whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are thrilled to welcome Cornell West to the New York Historical Society. Dr. West is a prominent and provocative democratic intellectual. He is professor of philosophy and Christian practice at Union Theological Seminary and professor emeritus at Princeton University. He's also taught at Yale, Harvard, and the University of Paris. Dr. West is the recipient of more than 20 honorary degrees, and he frequently appears on Real Time with Bill Mayer, The Colbert Report, CNN, C-SPAN, Colbert, sorry. Thank you for correcting my pronunciation. Um, <laughs> and other national and international media. He's written numerous critically acclaimed books, including Race Matters and Democracy Matters. Most recently, he's the co-author of Black Prophetic Fire, and editor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s The Radical King. Before we begin, as always, I want to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. West to the stage.
What a blessing to be here at this grand institution, the New York Historical Society Museum and Library. It was 20 years ago that my dear sister, President Barbara Knowles Debs, invited me to be here, and I am so blessed to return. I want to salute the captain of the ship, our dear sister, President CEO, Dr. Louise Mirror. Give it up for our sister. Absolutely. And I want to also salute Sister Dale Gregory's being so very kind, the staff always so embracing. And for each one of you to take this short time in your short lives to come here and focus not on me, but on the magnificent human beings who stood with such courage and such vision in 1965 all colors, but disproportionately chocolate. <laughs> oh, we had some vanilla brothers and sisters standing tall. And of our vanilla brothers and sisters, it was disproportionately Jewish brothers and sisters going by down to gut bucket, Jim Crow American South. But it has so much to do with not just black people, not just America, it has to do with what it means to be human, because I don't know about you. I know I am who I am because somebody loved me. Somebody cared for me. Somebody attended to me with all the various titles, Professor X and Y. I will never, ever have a higher honor than being the second son of the late Clifton and the present Irene West and being the brother of Clifton and Cynthia and Cheryl the father of Clifton and Zaytun. And I say that because when you see black, white, red, and yellow people standing up, they're standing up based in part on what the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel called piety. And by piety, he did not mean blind obedience. He did not mean uncritical acceptance of a religious creed. He meant being honest about what the sources of good are in your life, in your short trek from mother's womb to tomb. It could be family piety, mom, dad, granddad, grandma. It could be intellectual piety. My God, Samuel Beckett made a difference in my life. Couldn't make it without Tony Morrison. Ooh, Sondheim's music, I can't live without John Coltrane's Love Supreme. <laughs> Silent, owing to the gravitas of the sound. All of those are forms of wind at our back. And so it's so easy to fall into a very narrow political discourse, very provincial discourse about power and resources. But fundamentally, what was going on in the 1960s, fundamentally what is going on in Ferguson, this very moment, is not primarily about politics. It's about what does it mean to be human. It's an echo of line 38A of Plato's Apology. The unexamined life is not worth living. And we know that Greek says the unexamined life is not a life for the human. And our English human derives from the Latin humando, which means what? Burying and burial. That we're beings toward death. And the question is, will we live in denial? Will we live lives of conformity and complacency in such a way that we won't confront that frightening question of what it means to be human and acknowledge the degree to which 
we are on our way to being the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. And when those brothers and sisters in the 1960s of all colors, I see the Shriver sitting over there, my dear brother, president of Union Theological Seminary, had the courage or the foolishness to hire me in 1977, 23 years old. Peggy sitting next to him, his wife, I think she gave him some support in bringing me in. I appreciate that, Sister Peggy. And he's still strong. And he's a Southern brother, too, which means he had to cut against the grain, because you all know a lot, even a number of progressive white brothers and sisters, you all have a lot of cousins who got work to do. <laughs> so we had tough Thanksgiving dinners, cutting against the grain in the family. But it was about the Socratic question kind of human being are you going to choose to be in the face of risk? So when Martin King, when Diane Nash, when James Bevel, when old sister Boyton, who had been wrestling with the issue since the 1930s, when Abraham Joshua Heschel and all the others went down, many of them went down with no sense of returning. I was just talking to my dear brother John Scott in his wonderful book on the Civil Rights Movement. He said when we sent folk down to Selma in 1964. It was unclear whether they'd come back, and when they came back, we couldn't believe they lived to talk about it. That's the context. Might be very difficult for us to jump outside of our 21st century skin and get a sense of what it means to deal with American terrorism. There's a lot of talk about terrorism since 9-11, isn't it? First time large numbers of Americans feel unsafe, unprotected, subject to random violence, and hated for who they are. And black folks say, you don't say. <laughs> you don't say. 400 years of being unsafe, unprotected, subject to random violence, for hated for who they are. But the fundamental achievement, and it's a spiritual achievement, it's an existential achievement in the face of all of that hatred, all of that contempt, in the face of all of that tear and trauma and stigma, here comes a caravan of love. That's what the Isley Brothers call the Black Freedom Movement, a caravan of love. That gentle genius from the chocolate side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, named Curtis Mayfield, he called it a love train. Said, people get ready. Don't need no ticket, just get on board, but not for cowards, not for conformance, not for those who are concerned about other things, what would think about them. You've got to step out on nothing and land on something. That's what they were doing. It's easy in retrospect for us to go down 50 years later. Now everybody's down there, you know. <laughs> right wing folk, centrist folk, neoliberal folk. Who was down there then? These slice of prophetic Christians, Jews, there were probably some Muslims, but not as many because we didn't have as many numbers. And you had some communists, you had some socialists. Oh, we don't like to be reminded of that. No, we at the New York Historical Society. We got to tell the truth. <laughs> they were willing to cut against the grain and wrestle with the Socratic question of examining theirs themselves and examining themselves in such a way that they were willing to look death in the face, not just physical death. I tell my students for the last 41 years, every time you enter my classroom, you have come here to learn how to die. 
And he said, oh, really? I thought I was just taking philosophy class and get a grade. No, no, you're in the wrong class. You come here to learn how to die. Because anytime you give up an assumption, a presupposition, or a prejudice, or a prejudgment, let it go. That's a form of death. And there's no growth without that kind of self-interrogation, that Socratic questioning of self. There's no maturation. And those of us religion, religious, Christian like myself, no rebirth without death. The New Testament says what? Christians must die daily. Dorothy Day, one of the greatest towering prophetic figures of the 20th century, wrote probably the most powerful eulogy of Martin Luther King Jr. when he died on April 5th. 1968, and the Catholic worker, the day after he had shot, he was shot in Memphis, she said what? He had learned to die daily, which meant he tried to kill certain assumptions, presuppositions, certain fears, certain insecurities, certain anxieties in order to do what? To become more human, more compassionate, more critical, more courageous. And we're not talking about purity. No one of us pristine. Those folk marching in 1965, many of them of all colors still had white supremacy inside of them. They were battling it internally and externally. And that's very important in 2015 because you got so many folk running around. Oh, I'm not a racist anymore. I've transcended that. I'm post-racial. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm a Jesus-loving, free black man in America wrestling for 61 years. I still got white supremacy in me. If I'm struggling with it in me, my hunch is... You still got a little work to do. <laughs> We're not talking about purity and being pristine. You're talking about whether you have the Socratic courage to examine yourself and cut against the grain. And this is true not just in relation to white supremacy. It's true in relation to male supremacy. It's true in relation to anti-Jewish hatred, anti-Arab hatred, anti-Muslim hatred. It's true even in terms of regional arrogance. New Yorkers going down to Alabama, you know. Speaking so slow, it takes them a while to say what they got to say. We say it a little quicker in Brooklyn, because <laughs> Christy, in other places. No, to be human is to be wrestling with this civil war taking place on the battlefield of our own souls. And then to muster the love. And Brother Martin used to remind us, justice is what love looks like in public. You saw those folk marching. That was justice in motion. Great Abraham Joshua Hesher used to say, my legs were praying. I would add, my legs were loving. Why? Because you can't love without learning how to die in order to be reborn into a more courageous, compassionate self, personal relation, social relations. And one of the problems in the United States then and now, and one of the great contributions that black people at our best have been able to provide the United States is ways of learning how to muster the courage to love. W. Du Bois raised four questions. This magnificent exhibition of our dear brother Stephen Summerstein is an answer to his question. First question, how shall integrity face oppression? Didn't say cupidity. Didn't say love of money. Didn't say timidity. Didn't say vapidity. He said integrity. Didn't say purity. 
And of course, these days, anybody that aspires to integrity is profoundly countercultural <laughs> in a market-driven society. We got our precious Boy Scouts. I was a Cub Scout, never made it that high, but I appreciate that, yeah. <laughs> we got our boy, you know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about integrity, right? What Jane Austen called constancy, trying to be morally consistent in such a way that you're willing to be a, a human being who aspires a high standard and sacrifice your popularity in the name of something greater. Integrity, that's the voice's question. The second query, what does honesty do in the face of deception? Given all the mendacity, usually connected to forms of criminality. And I'm not just talking about Wall Street now, but <laughs> the crimes come in all colors, in all places, in all contexts. Even though there's Wall Street, not too many Wall Street executives went to jail during that financial catastrophe. I'm upset about that, not because I'm anti-Wall Street, because I'm pro-justice. Let Jamal and Letitia get caught with a crack bag, they dragged to jail immediately. It's a warped rule of law. Honesty, great James Baldwin. That last line of his preface and notes of a native son, I aspire to be an honest man and a good writer how difficult it is to have a fundamental commitment to honesty that has even subversive consequences in a world of such mendacity, lies, and dishonesty. The third question, what does decency do in the face of insult? And the last query, how does virtue meet brute force. When you see that exhibition, those sly stone call ordinary everyday people, or they, those James Cleveland call ordinary people, they straighten their backs up. Brother Martin used to say, what any time everyday people straighten their backs up, they're going somewhere because folk can't ride your back unless it's bent. Straighten it up going to be targeted, misunderstood, misconstrued. Keep love at the center of it. Pursue justice. Don't worry about being unpopular. Hold on to each other. Enact that beloved community. Spread what our Jewish brothers and sisters call hesed, that loving kindness beginning with the least of these, the vulnerable, the fatherless and motherless, the widow and the orphan exemplify that love of not just neighbor, but that Palestinian Jew named Jesus talking about love your enemy. Why? Because no matter how gangster-like they are at the moment, they can choose to be different. Don't freeze them in one moment in such a way that their essence is somehow defined by their gangster activity at the particular moment. Each and every one of us can choose to be different no matter how thuggish like we are at the moment. I'm talking about some of the police that you see in the pictures. Some of our white brothers and sisters that you see in the pictures is not a question of somehow just name calling and finger, and finger pointing. They're on a human continuum with us. 
They're just more thuggish and more gangster. Of course, I don't know your lives. Maybe you look closer to them than I think. I don't know. But I know myself. I was a gangster before I met Jesus, and now I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. <laughs> so when I see gangsters in any context, Wall Street, Main Street, White House Congress, drone droppers, torturers, it's not a question of finger pointing. It's a question of pursuing justice, moral in indictment, spiritual condemnation, organizing, mobilizing, but still having enough spiritual gas in my tank to love my enemies. That's what you saw in part with those folk marching in 1965. It may make no sense to you whatsoever, but you've got to get outside of your late modern or postmodern skin and get inside of these folk in 1965 when Martin King is telling folk, love your enemies because love is the most powerful force in the world even though it seems to be so weak and impotent at the moment because in the end every empire goes under, every oppressive regime sooner or later will meet its end. Truth crushed the earth will rise again, not because he's some cheap optimist, but because he has read the human record. And he's seen that Alexander was not so great in the way in which Amos was, the way in which Dorothy Day was, the way in which Jesus was, the way in which Muhammad was. It's hard to follow that line all the way up into the 21st century, though, isn't it? Things get real spiritually thin in our present moment. No Martin Kings, no Fannie Lou Hamers, no Curtis Mayfields, no Nina Simones, no Curtis Mayfields, no Carol Kings, no Sondheim. Sondheim's still alive, but he's not working at the same level as he was. <laughs> Sunday the Park with George and company and other great classics. What is happening in our present world? Well, it has something to do, of course, with the degree to which there's a decline of integrity, honesty, decency, and virtue. The market culture, the cupidity has become ubiquitous. We live in the age of the sellout. Too many willing to sacrifice their integrity for popularity, to sacrifice their decency, for upward mobility or high visibility. And it's especially at work among our young people. One of the saddest sights, I've been blessed to teach in prison for over 37 years. One of the saddest sights when I look at American civilization, our fragile experiment in democracy, and yes, our empire, and look at the souls of young people. They're bombarded every day to be stimulated titillated consumers, just a bundle of desires to pursue pleasure, usually a joyless quest for pleasure. When you look in the eyes of those folk marching in Selma in 65, you see joy. And it's a joy they'll never forget. Ask the great John Lewis about it. It's not pleasure, it's joy. Most of our young people these days, joyless quests for pleasure, insatiable pleasure, access, power, status, wealth, that thin stuff that doesn't sustain you in the midst of catastrophe, in the midst of crisis. 
And that's what our young people are hungry and thirsty for. Ferguson is just the symbol of it. The Ashley Yates and Tefpos and Tory Russells, and the Netta and so many others, they are symbols, symptoms, and concrete human expressions of a hunger and thirst for precisely kind of joy in serving others. Joy in something bigger than your ego being satisfied. Joy in just somehow being a peacock standing in front of a group obsessed with the focus on you rather than trying to tell the truth and bear witness and accenting the plight of others beginning with the 22% of children who live in poverty in America, the richest nation in the history of the world, the nearly 40% of children of color in the United States this very moment living in poverty in the richest nation in the history of the world. We know that's a moral disgrace. Where's the holy anger? Where's the righteous indignation? Where's the moral outrage overflowing? You see, 1965, they were doing what? They looked to the federal government. We looked to our federal government in 2015. It was very interesting that there was no critique of the federal government. How could there be a critique, Brother West? The president was there. Yeah, that's part of the problem. He was there symbolically. He gave a magnificent sentimental speech. And by sentimental, I mean precisely what James Baldwin meant when he said ostentatious parading of excessive and spurious emotion with no fundamental intention for substantial action, especially given the circumstances under which so many poor and working people have to, have to wrestle. That's why you could have a black youth or a brown youth shot every 28 hours in America for the last eight years with a black president, a black attorney general, and a black cabinet secretary, Homeland Security, and not one federal prosecution of a policeman for any of those murders. Not one. Who's going to raise the issue? Al Sharpton. Oh, Al Sharpton, just an extension of the White House. Come on. He's not going to engage in prophetic critique the way Martin King did. No way. The cheerleader of the powers that be. Who's going to do it? Who's going to raise the issue? So many folk frozen, given their obsession with access, power, want to be on television, can't wait to get their TV show, whatever form it takes. Thank God that Martin's not around. Martin was not smiling when they were marching. Oh, Brother West, you really getting controversial. That's right. He was not smiling. He was keeping track of the poverty in Selma. He was keeping track of the new Jim Crow and the prison industrial complex. He was keeping track of the massive unemployment and underemployment. He was keeping track of the decrepit school systems that too often generate forms of soul murder to our rich folk. Our dear sister Diane Ravage is right. Rich kids get taught, poor kids get tested. Martin Luther King looks at the world through the lens of the cross. He's not looking at the world through the lens of flag waver. He's not a flag waver. He's first and foremost a cross bearer who waves the flag when it conforms with the unarmed truth and unconditional love of the cross. What we saw in Selma was flag waving. 
Oh my God, this magnificent progress. Of course we've made progress, no doubt about that. America is less racist now than it was in 65. Do you think that means America should receive a moral prize for the depths of white supremacy in 1965 where black folk didn't even have the right to vote, levels of disrespect and contempt at work, and now some more can vote? White brothers and sisters, less racist, vote for a black president? That's wonderful, symbolically speaking. But when it comes to substance, as Malcolm X used to say, you don't stab folk in the back nine inches pull it out six inches and celebrate your progress. <laughs> no, Martin's with Malcolm, he's with Fannie Lou, he's with Ella Baker. Don't get caught in the symbolic expression and the therapeutic expressions of how far we've come. Of course we celebrate the unbelievable sacrifice of those who enabled how far we come. But in 2015, we've got some ecological catastrophe impending. Nuclear catastrophe is still possible. 1% of the population own 43% of the wealth. That generates economic catastrophe for so many poor and working people. 0.1% wage increase given wage stagnation for 30 years, yet profits are exponentially increasing all the time. Oh my God, we've got some challenges. We celebrate on the one hand those persons of integrity, honesty, decency, and virtue, but also acknowledge we live in some very dark and bleak times where integrity, honesty, decency, and virtue among all of us, but unfortunately more and more, more difficult for our young people to gain access to. And they become obsessed with being successful and too often forget of what those freedom fighters were faithful to. Because being successful means very little if you forget what you really ought to be faithful to. And what you ought to be faithful to in the end is precisely this wrestling with what it means to be human and dishing out genuine love and justice spilling over in the private sphere and tenderness and sweetness and gentleness in the private sphere. Justice in the public sphere, tenderness in the private sphere. We live in a time where there's not enough tenderness, not enough sweetness, not enough gentleness. Look in the faces of those folk of all colors. They had a tenderness in their face. They had a joyfulness. They had a sweetness. And of course, I come from the black freedom tradition, and that means they were soulful. Because soul is about the sharing of a soothing sweetness against the backdrop of catastrophe. They were a blues people. And blues is about what? Compassion in the face of catastrophe. B.B. King says, nobody loves me but my mama, and she might be jiving, too. <laughs> That's the blues. But what is, how does he say it with such style and smile? A little help from Lucille, his guitar that echoes Muddy Waters and Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, and that reverberates on to Aretha Franklin, Luther Vandross, and Donnie Hathaway. 
and Carol King. It's not just a black thing, but it helps to be in connection with the black musical tradition to understand that tenderness alongside that willingness to die in the name of not yourself, your family, not even just your country, but justice across the board. That's why our Dalit brothers and sisters in India could respond, the untouchables. That's why when Somalia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, they see the US drones coming at them. They can say, oh, we know there's another America that brings critique to bear on the killing of innocent people. That's what the 1960s at its best in 65 was all about. And let us be on, honest about this, that after courageous LBJ, and oh, how courageous he was, like Abraham Lincoln, he was a white brother who was willing to change the white supremacy in him had to be called into question. He became a major force for good. Vietnam, another question. It responds to white supremacy, heroic. When he signed that bill, the Voting Rights Bill of 1965 on August 6th, five days later, what happened? Watts, LA, billions of dollars, 36 dead, 65,000 black people participate in a rebellion. And you can imagine many white brothers and sisters say, look, we can give those Negroes all that and they still mad. You don't say. <laughs> Voting rights breakthrough. Oh, it's more than voting. Voting's precious. Who you voting for? Politicians tied to big money, already set the agenda, problematic. How do you deal with structural inequality? How do you deal with unemployment? Will they opt for programs for the middle class and the well-to-do of black and brown and yellow and forget about the precious poor and working black, brown, and yellow? And that's precisely what America did for over 30 years. Celebrated success of the exceptional well-to-do ones in self-perception and lost sight of the precious poor and working ones who were left behind and found themselves locked into, not neighborhoods. I grew up in a ghetto, but it was a neighborhood. It was a neighborhood that Donna Hathaway and Leroy Hudson were singing about with the ghetto. The ghetto was a site of love, resilience, and gangster activity. <laughs> the hood, survival of the slickest. Very different. Few resources available. Can't play the instruments. No arts programs in the schools. You sing out of tune and still make a million dollars. <laughs> Nat King Cole and Carmen McRae turn over in their grave. The standards declining. Thank God for the New York Historical Society to bring us together to try to wrestle with these issues. No one of us have a monopoly on the truth, capital T. But the condition of any truth when it comes to human beings to allow suffering to speak. And we see in 65, they allowed that suffering to speak, but they kept the love at the center of it. And I'm just worried that with the escalating rage, the black rage and other forms of rage of poor and working people, if it's channeled through hatred and revenge, it could bring the curtain down on the precious experiment in democracy called the USA with whatever color politicians at the top celebrating while folk in the middle and below catching hell in the basement. 
or if it's channeled through love and justice, we may have a chance. It's always an open-ended question. Thank you all so very much. We want to have a good time for questions. My dear brother, jump right in. Thank you, Dr. West. What a wonderful speech. Thank you very much. No, but thank you. When you talk about love and you talk about tolerance, one of the places where I don't see it at all are the people that represent us in Congress, in the Senate, in the state legislatures. How do they get their message? How do they care about us? That's a wonderful question. No, brother. I mean, part of, I alluded very briefly when I talk about the role of big money. It makes it very difficult for uh, politicians that actually feel as if integrity pays off as opposed to simply gaining access to resources and money and reproducing themselves and sliding down. People are obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> but I think we have to hold up certain examples of persons. And by integrity, you see, I'm not just talking about one particular ideology at all, you see. That it's, it's possible. I was at a wonderful gathering this morning with um, the Associated American Publishers. I know we've got a couple of brothers who were here both nights. I don't know how you can stand me for twice, two times in one day. But uh, and David Brooks gave a wonderful presentation reflecting on the roots of character. And he was talking about this very issue of integrity. And I have deep ideological and political differences with him. But he understands the fundamental role of what I call soul craft. What kinds of human beings need to be in place for there to be a genuine focus on poor and working people? And it, the only response, I think, is like the conclusion of a practical Aristotelian syllogism, which is example. Young people must see examples. Like our Boy Scouts, you all rather see sermons than hear them. Is that right? You want to see folk who exemplify integrity. You're din, you're dean, you're still a dean. What, what do you call the head of your, your, your din? The scout, scout master, scout, scout. You want to see integrity in him or her. And, and once they see that, it, it becomes something that they can tilt toward and may even become contagious. But if they see only consumer-oriented, market, obsessed, obsessed with titillation and stimulation rather than caring and nurture, then they no longer even have the tools to cultivate the capacity to deeply love. They end up just skating through life, obsessed with commodities and possessions, and thinking to live in some vanilla suburb in a big mansion is the good life. And that is a form of spiritual blackout. So it's by example. My long answer is by example. Hey, hey. That's, that's, that's what I my brother. Just go right ahead, my sister. I know we don't have a lot of time, and I appreciate you all. Good evening, Dr. West. Yes. Um, in my capacity as an attorney, I experienced many forms of death. Um, mm. When I was in Bronx County as an assistant district attorney, uh, knowing the black letter law, but not the philosophy and essence of the law and conceptions of justice. In hindsight, I was in conflict. In my capacity as a teacher, um, I have found forms of rebirth, not always Beautiful. successful Beautiful. in understanding and acknowledging how that imbues me with a sense of life. Um, but my main purpose, and um, every so often, is to reflect on my teaching, to reflect on what I'm giving back to the community. And I'm very concerned about the school-to-prison pipeline, 
how we're losing our children to our prisons and what follows in the form of disenfranchisement. And when I try to revisit and reflect on this, I always find myself rereading the Moynihan Report. Mm. And I'd like to ask you, what do you believe? Do you believe that it was a cultural analysis of the black life and the upward mobility or the lack thereof in, um, in our communities? Or do you think that it was a prophetic, to use your word, by the way, very good book. Was it prophetic? Was it a cultural analysis? Or was it undergirded by racial paradigms that have been used today to further disenfranchise people of color? Mm, thank you so much. You're talking about that famous 1965 report by Daniel Monahan that basically argued that it was the black family that served as a source of pathology in the culture. It didn't allow for the kind of constraints to limit, to put, put limits to instant gratification that resulted in too many children born out of, out of wedlock and so on. And I think that, uh, I think that, that Daniel Monahan actually, he, he saw a symptom and thought it was a cause. Uh, the family is a problem. Weak families, feeble communities, market-driven media is obsessed with targeting especially young people to become consumers rather than critically oriented citizens. It does disarm persons, especially when they're socially neglected and economically abandoned, given the tr massive transfer of wealth from poor and working people to the well-to-do in the last 30 years. You see. So that the, the, the family ought to be seriously talked about. Culture is very important, but it's always against the backdrop of massive unemployment, massive underemployment, lack of education, and then, of course, the psychic and existential dimensions of not enough self-love, not enough self-respect, not enough self-confidence, not enough self-regard. So the, the, it was easier to talk about the family than it was full employment. If, if we had been able to pull off what Humphrey and others were talking about in the 60s, that full employment with jobs with a living wage, we'd have a different America. We shifted from the workplace to the more privatized sites like family and so forth. And the issue of unemployment remains in many ways a, a catastrophe that is in no way reflected in the statistics at all. You know, when I went out, you hear the, White House trotting out, we're down to 5.9, time to celebrate, we break dancing. No, 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 but we can do better. No, no, it's not 5.9, use the European criteria of unemployment and then apply that to those who are no longer work, no longer look, looking for a job, the part-timers who are working, who are not counting. And it's 10.4 in black and brown communities, especially black communities, even given the narrow, the narrow criteria. It's about 15 or 18 across the board, and for youth, 45 to 50%. I mean, that is just unacceptable in any civilized society. Unacceptable. Yeah. And Finland, Sweden, and Norway, and others understand what certain criteria, what it is to be, be a civilized society. You can't have poverty rates in your children 40% and think that somehow you're going to have a high quality education. You see, that's why they got 2%. Poverty in Finland, number one school system in the world. 14 classes, two teachers in every class. Teacher, tremendous status, walks into the room, everybody looks up to him. In America, teacher walks in, what? Still making it? Still breathing? What's it like down there? Salaries, low. 
even even the debate with the police in, in, in New York City. I mean, I'm unequivocally against this culture of contempt that I too often see among the police. And I know there's good police, but the good police need to make the other police accountable. But the police, for me, ought to be paid at least twice of what they're paid vis-a-vis -vis bankers on Wall Street, given the role that they play. That's true for public teachers. We got our values, priorities warped when it comes to public things, public life, public transportation, public education, public conversation, and so forth and so on. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a radical libertarian. I, I believe people have a right to be wrong. I fight for the right of Brother Rush Limbo to be wrong. He has a right to be wrong. But at the same time, I know that that's part of the trashing of things public, especially when associated with people of color. But I know we got another question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hi. How you doing? Um, I had a problem when Bob Herbert titled Giuliani's well-named street crimes unit was killing an unarmed black man every two weeks, sodomized one in a subway bathroom. And what is Bob Herbert right? Jim Crow justice. I'm from the South. I'm white. I'd love to have black jeans and maybe a little bit of Jewish because it'd make it easier to be, live in New York. <laughs> but, because uh, there is anti-Goyism here. But I was in the civil rights movement in Chapel Hill. Oh, yes. And, you know, my name was April White. I had a friend named Cordell Black. What, did you spell his name with one L or two L? I can't find him. Oh, oh you couldn't find him. Oh, yeah, I can't okay. find him anymore. Yeah. I think he's, he's still in Europe. I don't know. Mm. But um, we used to put our arms around and sing black and white together. And the best day of my life, and I tell, in New York, I tell people, I'm white Southern and I was in the Civil Rights Movement, and they say, on which side? No, you specify, you got a question though, right? Yeah, I No, because I, I mean, you got a fascinating story now. You got a fascinating no, I story. I just like to inform the New York public yes. that there is a Civil Rights Movement that wasn't done by New Yorkers in Selma. And there is a professor at NYU who should speak here. He wrote a book, Rebellion in Black and White, Southern Student Activism in the 1960s. One of the... Oh, no, I, th I, think, we, I think we've acknowledged the contribution of our precious white brothers question. and sisters in the black freedom movement. I don't remember that. But anyway, uh, here's, here's the Oh, you missed that part of my talk? <laughs> Here's a question. Yes, yes. Do you think that clicktivism, i.e. bitching online about, for example, the Tea Party instead of hauling ass like we did in the 60s down to, you know, or up to Washington, to say no Tea Party, we want national health insurance. Instead, bitching online with people we agree with. Is that a problem? I would say yes, but you got a whole lot going on in your question and formulation. <laughs> but I just want to say your genes are fine and you were on the right side in the 60s. But let's go straight to Brother Donald Shriver because he's another southern brother who was on the right side. I know he's got a probing question. I'm uh, deeply grateful for your tribute. 
I will have to pay tribute to the New York Historical Society for one of the educational moments in my life when several years ago, in a display of the history of slavery in New York City, it was pointed out that in January of 1861, the mayor of New York City suggested New York ought to secede with the Union. <laughs> of course, it was the cotton trade in Wall Street that was being troubled by that secession. Mm -hmm. that, my southern soul was certainly helped by that kind of fact <laughs> because I resonate with what you said uh, about many things, but especially with the problem of contempt between groups. Yes, yes. I have a, a profession which might pr permit me to call myself a moralist. But my question to you is this. How in public life can all of us, when we speak to each other across any kind of span, how is it that we can be moral without being moralistic? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, the one... Well, President Travis has written a magnificent book on forgiveness that in some ways is an answer to that profound query. That is to say, how do we stay in contact with the humanity of each other, knowing that in staying in contact with that humanity, you'll be in contact with faults and foibles and inadequacies as well as some wonderful capacities. And that, that, that was part of what I meant when I was talking about starting with oneself and the evil inside oneself. If I begin with the white supremacy inside of me, the male supremacy inside of me, the anti-Jewish elements inside of me, the anti-Muslim elements, and then get up every day to fight it, every day to fight it and try to be better, and then to have some criteria of accountability and answerability outside of my own subjective sensibility. It's got to be something bigger. You see. But even when I get further down the road, I still got work to do. It's impossible to be a Christian and not have some anti-Jewish elements. Anti-Semitism is shot through every Christian civilization we know. Even the great Christians who struggle for Jewish freedom with Jewish brothers and sisters. But same is true these days with our Arab and Muslim brothers. Same is true with homophobia and so forth. So that sense of being moral but not being moralistic, which in a certain sense is being sentimental again. And being sentimental in the end, as Baldwin says, leads to what? A mask of cruelty and arid heart. Coarse and conscious, and a chilly soul. That's the last thing you want. Hold off on the crocodile tears. When you cry, make them genuine tears of sorrow or genuine tears of joy. That's what Richard writes there when he wrote Native Son. I don't want crocodile tears. I want people to change their thinking and become free freedom fighters. So when they hear Billy Holiday sings, strange fruit then tears might flow, but those not going to be crocodile. Because Billy's at the center of the catastrophe with the Jewish brother writing the lyrics, Maripol. That's, I think, the kind of level of morality and humanity, genuine tears that shatter the numbness, the callousness, and the indifference. And yet even as we are on fire, we recognize that we must not fall into narrow pits of self-righteousness. We can always be self-critical and grow and expand. My dear brother, go right ahead. 
Thank you, Professor. You Thank seem you. to have inspired each of us to examine our own lives in front of the microphone tonight. Um, <laughs> I would like, I'm about to turn 60. I fought Reaganism in the 80s. I fought in the streets uh, for lesbian and gay rights in the 90s. I retired two years ago uh, out of the New York City DOE as a special education teacher in the South Bronx at a community high school. And I'm now fighting against the education reformistas and to protect and preserve the blast of the labor unions, so the public sector unions in this country. I'm exhausted. Do you have any, any advice I want? <laughs> well, one, I just want to salute you, though, brother. But two, you got to keep in mind that B.B. King's almost 90 years old. He still does 230, 240 gigs every year, sitting in a wheelchair with diabetes and still sounding so good that Ma Rainey got to holler out from the grave and say, go on, B.B., go on and do your thing. But it's a matter of pacing yourself. So at, at this point, you, it is good to be able to just take off on the weekends and relax. And <laughs> listen to a little John Coltrane, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. But we, we will be in the streets together on Monday, don't get me wrong. Absolutely. All right. Um, hi. Uh, How you doing, my brother? A quick announcement and a question. Yes. The announcement is I want to invite everyone to the premiere film screening of the historic dialogue between Dr. Cornell West, a revolutionary Christian, and Bob Avakian, oh, brother Bacon, yeah, revolutionary yeah, yeah. communist. This is going to be on the theme. It's a film of this incredible dialogue on the theme of revolution and religion, the fight for emancipation, and the role of religion. And this is going to be shown uh, at the Schomburg Center mm. on March 28th, that's Saturday, at 4 p.m. I invite everyone to come and to attend wow. this incredible, amazing, historic dialogue on a question that affects the lives of literally billions on this planet. So that's my quick announcement. And a question to you. Uh, you mentioned uh, empire. Yes, yes. And uh, democracy and empire. And uh, I would be interested in hearing you speak a little more elaborate on how you see empire in terms of the America that we live in and the historical America. In other words, how do you see the relationship between the structures and the practices of this society, its standard of living, everything about it, and empire? Because you've talked about that, and it seems to me that people have a very enclosed, insular view of this country. And then when you hit them on the head with empire, I know you brought this out with Letterman on uh, the other night. I do want to salute uh, Dr. West for his, uh, I don't know if people saw him on David Letterman, but I thought it was incredible what you were doing on that show, waking people up and really pointing uh, a light on the inequities in society and the world. And the world is what I'd like to hear you more talk more about this question of empire in America, America as an empire, and how you actually see this. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And as you know, that's a seminar. That takes a good, 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 good while. But I mean, when S. Scott Fitzgerald says in the crack of that wonderful essay in the Esquire 1938, that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. When you think of America, you've got to think of fragile experiment in democracy on the one hand and adventure in empire on the other. Ask indigenous peoples. World War I started in 1492, been going on ever since. But at the same time, there are some precious democratic procedures and, and processes that people have given their lives for, especially working people. But elites 
who choose to be, be persons of integrity, honesty, and decency have played a crucial role. By empire, I mean outside of democratic accountability, especially executive power of the president, its ability to declare war, sustain war, sustain the resources for what is it now? We, got, we don't even know how many military outposts we have because we can't count all of them, but we know it's over 102 countries and a ship in every ocean. We know that Saudi Arabia, one of the most reactionary, autocratic, authoritarian nations, an exemplar of the worst of fundamentalist Islam, is one of the best friends of the United States. Why is it best friend? Well, they had artichokes rather than oil. Be a different situation. Let's just tell the truth in terms of our relation with these autocrats. Why is it Saddam Hussein was installed by the CIA, but also on the FBI list later on, or Noriega? These are decisions made that have to do with, by impact, geopolitical power moves, as well as tied to corporate interests and big, big money interests and the ways in which contracts, huge contracts with the Pentagon, make it very difficult for democratic accountability to set in. Same is true with the drones that I talked about. You know, we got 203 children who have been killed by US drones. Myself and Medea Benjamin and others talked to the parents. Where is the information? New York Times, trying. Amy Goodman, on the mark, tells the truth. Middle East, right? We just got Nathan, the President Nathan Yahoo just re-elected in Israel. My God, 500 Palestinian babies murdered in 50 days and not one American politician can raise a voice and say, this is morally wrong. This is not just unjust. It is spiritually bankrupt. Well, all of them had shields, and, and Hamas had shields. No, 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 Hamas gangsters, too. We can keep track of the gangsters, but we talk about the children. We talk about innocent people. Oh, it's more complicated than that, Brother West. I know our Jewish brothers and sisters need security. You think you can have security based on occupation? What an illusion of security. How long do you think that will last? Where's the public conversation? That has something to do with empire, too. It's a matter of a robust conversation, kind of thing that John Stuart Mill called for in that second chapter on liberty. It's hard to have that in the corporate media. Mean-spirited Republicans, Fox News, milk toast, neoliberals, MSNBC, what media is left for a serious analysis. I don't believe any media has a monopoly on truth. But where is the analysis connecting empire, capitalism, patriarchy, and so forth, and so on? Because our young people are hungry for it. If they don't find it, they're going to opt for some very narrow crypto manichaean narratives that are often xenophobic, hate-filled. That's in part what ISIS and Al-Qaeda are all about. They are gangsters par excellence. We're hungry and thirsty and found the answer in most of, some of the most vicious xenophobic forms. But they're young folk on fire. But it's put through the wrong channels. And America has a similar kind of challenge. So that's the beginning of an answer to your question. But as I said before, it's not a question of just ideology. It's a question of trying to get the analysis right in terms of where resources go, why they go, where they go, and why too many people don't have access to those resources when it comes to food and shelter. In too, too many instances, the babies don't even have the right to live. And that's true in Israel, too, in terms of Hamas dropping bombs on precious Israeli children. 
Israeli baby has exactly the same value as a Palestinian baby, and a Palestinian baby has exactly the same value as an Israeli baby. And you tell it to American politicians, oh, Brother West, I can't say that in public. How come? You know American policy. No, I don't know that. Shoot, I know my Jewish brothers and sisters are interested in the truth, too. Conservatism doesn't have to be hegemonic among American Jews. It never has been. Free them up, too. And I'm not just talking about Noam Chomsky. <laughs> He's been free for a long time. I'm talking about massive moral awakening among precious Jewish brothers and sisters that say, yes, we got some fellow Jewish folk who are xenophobic, too racist, and not just that, but 27% of those in Israel itself wrestling with poverty because you got escalating inequality within Israel, even among Jewish and Arabs. And it's the same far-right tendency there that you have in the United States. It's not skin pigmentation, it's not religion. What kind of human being are you? What is the moral content and ethical consequences of the choices that you make? And that cuts across religion, culture, civilization, sexual orientation, and so on and so forth. But that was a long answer, I know, and I'm going to be much, much shorter. Go right ahead, What was the last one? Oh, oh. Maybe we just two in a row, and then I'll answer both. Is that all right? Sister Dale, is that all right? Okay, that's good. Yeah, It's an honor to hear, hear you talk. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard anyone say in public. But um, very kind. I just want to say that my question is, how does someone who looks at the world in a realistic perspective and sees all the horrors of the world in the past and everything and all the terrible things that have occurred now and in the past, how is, how is one who really wants to help the world avoid feeling overwhelmed and lost and just hopeless and try and work towards a positive future where everyone hopefully can live a better life? Thank you. That's a profound question, brother. Profound question. I tell you what I do, though, brother. I tell you what I do. Uh, when I really get pushed against the wall, and even my Christian faith begins to get weak, I read an agnostic or atheist called Anton Chekhov. I've read. He's got a. You, well, you read in the ravine. No, I haven't. Oh, you read that one at night. Oh, right when it looks as if all love and justice is suffocated, crushed the earth, somehow, mysterious source, because of course he's a lapsed Christian, so he's got some nice wind at his back. But. <laughs> I mean, Chekhov used to go to church on Sunday and just cry and say, it's too beautiful to be true. <laughs> so he felt the love, he just couldn't go with the conclusion. <laughs> but the love was still there. This is where art plays a crucial role. You listen to Love Supreme by John Coltrane. How does he somehow, in the midst of all of that catastrophe and all that he's going through historically, personally, still use that European instrument to play notes that it's hard to conceive of a European playing? Right? But it ain't got nothing to do with, to do with country. It's got to do with humanity. And the arts can help us in that regard. I, I, I get the same kind of uh, buoyancy out of Samuel Beckett. People say, oh, he's too dark. No, no. The song of despair is still a song. As long as he can sing, just keep those words on the page. And Sam's another lapsed Protestant. In this, his case, lapsed Christian. But he's let it go. But my God, he has got a flow going 
that has something to do with a resiliency, and in the end, even in love, the love between Didi and Gogo and waiting for Godot, it's there. It's there. So that's one of the things I would do. Now, if that doesn't work, we're going to have to try something else. <laughs> one last question. One last question. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynn Speed with the Schiller Institute. Oh, I'm yes. really glad that you raised this issue of the moral compass, particularly with respect to war. Yes. I really feel strongly that we are facing the danger of a global war. Now, I was last, just a week ago, in Selma, Alabama, at the invitation mm. of Amelia Boynton Robinson, who's a lady who invited Dr. King and others into Selma. Yeah. And I was personally appalled by the fact that President Obama attempted to equate the developments in Selma in 1965 to what has been ongoing in Ukraine, and specifically the people wearing Nazi insignias who revolted in the Maidan, who have killed Russian speakers and others. So my question is, you've been very critical, obviously, of his military and foreign policy. Is, my first question is your, your, your comment on that. Do you, as we do, reject this comparison? The second question is, you probably saw the news recently of the documentary that was, that was put out in Russia, where President Putin talked about the fact that he was prepared to use the military arsenal, the nuclear arsenal of Russia to defend the Crimea against horrific attacks. And this really confirms what the Schiller Institute, what Mr. LaRouche has been saying about the danger of thermonuclear war. So my question on, on this is um, it, how do you see this policy of Obama and new, uh, new, uh, Victoria Nuland with respect to this? And what are your thoughts on this and how we can get out of this? The last part is I just really think this economic crisis Ooh, is driving the war danger. So what are your comments? Good God Almighty. <laughs> no, but I, I appreciate your, uh, not just the power of your question, but the eloquence of your expression of those questions. Because, and I don't have answers, you can imagine. Uh, the first question, I, I agree with you. I think that that analogy is unpersuasive. It's, it's not compelling, but it's, it's, and it has not to do with just Obama himself. He's brilliant, he's charismatic, he's just wrong uh, on a number of things. He's right on some things too, but he's wrong on some things. And of course, Fox News thinks he's wrong on everything. Well, that's different. But, uh, uh, but he's got his own foreign policy he's trying to justify. I'm very upset about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's got his own rationalization for that as well. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. We're going to continually come at him with arguments and so forth. So you come at him with a very good argument in terms of the breakdown and that analogy. It doesn't hold at all. You've got too many fascists in the very groups that you supposedly are supporting and so on. And I do think we have to listen to people like Stephen Cohen and others who have talked about what happens in a shrinking Russia when it feels as if it is being encircled. This is very important. If we had a foreign, a foreign nation that somehow was moving into Mexico, what would, the, what would we respond to Texans? And I'm not just talking about George Bush, I'm talking about Texans. <laughs> what would be the response of America vis-a-vis Mexico? And doesn't make it right or wrong, we have to put ourselves in their shoes, even though I do believe that Putin is a gangster. There's no doubt about that. 
the way he treats his dissidents and so forth and so on. I can say that because I'm not a politician. <laughs> I'm not running for office and I keep track of his gangster activity. <laughs> and his relation to the oligarchs, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. Relation to two gangsters. Going at it. Uh, uh, now, the, 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 your, your second and third question, I probably have to hold off at the moment because it would just take too much time, but I resonate so deeply with your moral passion and your willingness to bring critique to bear, not just on Obama, any president that is not telling both the truth and not being honest about the kinds of uh, what's at stake, nuclear catastrophe, what's at stake, geopolitical conflict, what's at stake, a new Cold World, a Cold War, what does that mean? Thousands of nuclear warheads on both sides aimed at each other already. See, this is this 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 is a bit, this is what I meant by a very dark and bleak, bleak moment, and that's just at the geopolitical level. As you know, I'm concerned about soulcraft too. I just want there to be more persons of integrity, honesty, and decency among the younger generation of all colors. That's what we want to pass on to you all. Because one of the sadder things for me when it comes to uh, the young people, you see, when I was coming along, we had. Uh, we had musicians who sang in groups. <laughs> you see, we had the Temptations and the Marvelettes and the Dramatics, the Delphonics, the Emotions, the Mighty Dales. They sang in very tender ways and their voices blended together in such a way that you could see a collective performance. It wasn't just one individual with a microphone rapping, trying to make money. That's very important because they had a conception of themselves, of serving and touching souls, the soul stirs of Sam Cooke and Johnny Taylor and Lou Rawls. They sing to stir the soul, not stimulate the body. And that makes a difference, a big difference. And for young folk these days, where do they go to get the kind of spiritual resources to deal with these structural, institutional, and political problems. What would be the soundtrack of 1965 Selma for young folk today? And Beyonce ain't gonna do it. <laughs> she's the greatest entertainer of her day, but she's not a reefer. <laughs> she's not a reefer. She's not a reefer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you, Chad. Thank you all.